Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, I'm Barbara Archer, your host for Keeping the Well in Wealthy, where we discuss living a healthy lifestyle and offering support and resources to gracefully maneuver life's challenges at any age. Today, my guest and I will discuss the DNA dialogue, testing traits and truth. Before we do that, let me ask you this question. Have you ever done one of those swab tests or spit in a test tube to find out your ancestry? Well, about 22 million people are on Ancestry.com, and I don't really understand all the genetics and genomics behind this, but we'll find them out because healthy individuals who are interested in more than traits like Ancestry may be curious about responses to medications or risks for developing certain complex conditions or diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancers, or autoimmune diseases. So let me introduce you to my guest, Dr. Neil Lamb. He is president of Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, a nonprofit research institute located in Huntsville, Alabama, that leverages the synergy between discovery, education, medicine, and economic development in genomic sciences to improve the human condition around the globe. Before being named president, Dr. Lamb served as the institute's Vice President for Educational Outreach, where his team reached more than a million learners of all ages each year across the nation. For this, he has been recognized for his numerous contributions to the field of science education, being recognized most recently with an award for excellence in human genetics education. So we're going to use that today, and I'm going to welcome you, Neil, and ask about the differences between genetics and genomics. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be with you and your listeners. And why don't we just dive right in? Uh, there are people that think genetics and genomics are essentially the same, but let's think of an analogy that may resonate with you and your listeners. And that's of a cookbook. Everybody either likes to cook or likes to eat the things that come out of a cookbook. Absolutely. And it has a whole set of recipes in it, maybe some for chocolate cake, maybe some for breads or for appetizers. If we think about the cookbook is the collection of the recipes, each individual recipe tells you how to make some final product. We can take that same analogy now to the field of genetics and genomics. Individual genes are the recipes. They're like a recipe for chocolate cake, but in this case, they might be the recipe for how your body makes hemoglobin, which is a protein that carries oxygen in your red blood cells. There's about 20,000 of those genes inside every human cell in all of our DNA. And that collection of those genes is our genome. And that's like the cookbook that has all of the information in it. So when we talk about genetics, we're generally talking about the impact of a single gene, 
When we talk about genomics, we're talking about the impact across all of our genes, the way those genes interact with each other and the way they interact with our environment. Wow, thank you for that. That made it so much easier. And now that I understand that, I wanna know how did you choose to focus on the human genome? I am pretty much the product of my family. My dad is an engineer. My mom was a nurse. My grandfather was a plant horticulturalist. And so all my birthday and Christmas gifts were all science themed. I had a chemistry set, uh, you know, all, all those kinds of pieces. So science has been in and around me really from the very beginning. And when I was in college, I fell in love with DNA and the concept of genomes. And it was right at the time that we were starting to sequence the human genome and all the excitement and hype around that. And that's just a field that I fell in love with, both doing my own research and then leading education initiatives, helping other people understand the power of genetics and genomics. Wow. Well, since we're, I, I guess, is this the right question do I ask you about genetic testing and how it works, or is it genomic testing? Help me out again, please. Yeah, uh, both would be appropriate. Genetic testing, we are looking at specific genes. We're looking for the presence of information about specific genes. We can do a genome-wide set of tests, so we'd be doing genomic testing, or we can just focus in on a small number of genes, a handful of genes. And the type of tests that your audience may be familiar with ancestry, forensics, specific testing for disease, pharmacogenomics, cancer testing. Those are going to, some of them be very specific genetic tests, and some of those are going to be looking across our entire genome. So whenever a baby is born and you do that little, you get that little heel stick in that new baby, I understand there's a group of genetic testing that is, is it genetic or genomic testing that's done there? And so I'm curious, um, how can they get so much information from that one drop of blood? That's a great question. Essentially, when you do that, that heel stick test, mm -hmm. uh, you are looking for two things. You are either looking for the presence of a certain set of proteins that uh, may be out of balance in a newborn, and remember, genes provide recipes that tell your body how to make proteins. So by looking at the alterations in those proteins, you are getting some information back about genetics. And other tests in that drop of blood are actually going straight to the DNA and they're reading the recipe and they are looking for changes in the recipe that correlate with disease. So even in a tiny drop of blood, you are getting huge amounts of genetic information. You're getting them from the white blood cells that are in that blood. The red blood cells kick out their DNA in order to make more room to carry oxygen. So you're not looking at genetic information there. That's a, a fun little fact. You're really looking at the genetics in the white blood cells. But even in a drop of blood, there's enough genetic information to be able to run those tests. Wow. So who benefits most from genetic testing? I truly believe that as we continue to grow our science, as we continue to learn more, all of us ultimately benefit from genetic testing. And I'll explain why. Certainly, if you have individuals that have symptoms, you have some sort of disease, genetic testing can be used to either rule out a specific disease or to confirm the presence of a disease, maybe like 
like sickle cell or hemochromatosis or, or other disorders. And knowing the presence of that specific genetic change in some cases helps your physician identify what the outcome, the progression of the disease is, or maybe even thinking about therapy. Now let's flip to the other side. All of us are made up of DNA. We all have genetic recipes. And for all of us, some of those recipes have been altered from the typical version. So all of us can benefit from genetic information to identify things that we might be at risk for, or that we might have a higher predisposition of developing. All of us take medicine, and we can dig into pharmacogenomics in a little bit, but that's how changes in our DNA help determine which medications work and which don't work in our body. And then there's a whole set of genetic testing like ancestry that is really kind of for educational or int human interest purposes that some folks might benefit because they're naturally curious about. Well, that's fascinating. So the next step here, rather than discussing ethics and morality today, I'd like to focus on the advantages and disadvantages of the information we can gain from genetic testing, especially when we might uncover something we weren't anticipating. So I know you did some research in Down syndrome, is that correct? Okay. Right. So that's a nice pretest, right, before a baby joins us and you are better prepared, maybe having the right neonatal setup, the right pediatrician. But there are other things that I get a little concerned about from insurance, employment, social discrimination. Guide me a little bit in that regard. That's a great question. Our genetic information gets at the very heart of who we are, um, you know, how, how our cells develop, how our cells interact. And we share genetic information. Uh, we, we inherit it from our parents. We pass it on to our children. Uh, we have similarities between our siblings and other relatives. So that genetic information tells us about a lot of things, more than just my ancestry or how likely it is that I have blue hair, uh, blue eyes. Hopefully there is no genetics for blue hair. Well, someday you could have blue hair if you don't use the right shampoo. Well, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. But as we think about the power of genetic information, I think it starts by making sure that someone who is considering a genetic test or who's being offered a genetic test understands what that test can and cannot tell them. And every genetic test has a set of limitations. For example, if we don't understand the science, the genetic test is going to be less beneficial to us because we don't know how to interpret it. So we have to know specifically what we're looking for to begin with. Let's also then talk about, is the presence of this specific change in the recipe, if the genetic test tells me that I have a specific genetic change, how likely is it that that change means I am going to develop the disorder. Is it 100%? Mm. Is it 80%? Is it 30%? Knowing that has a big impact on how much power I'm going to put behind what that genetic information can, tells Can you know that? Can you know the percentage from the testing? For some diseases, well, you won't know it from the test itself, but if you find this particular result, from studies of individuals with that similar result, you might be able to say, oh, this particular change increases your risk of developing, let's say breast or ovarian cancer. It increases your lifetime risk um, to 80%. I see. 
That's a pretty significant change. It is significant. But a different change might only increase your lifetime risk to 20 or 25%. And knowing the difference between those makes it, you know, it's really important as you think about actions that you may take later on in life. You mentioned issues around discrimination and insurability. Yes, and that becomes important because in my line of work, we want to make sure people have everything in place before they maybe go down this path, just so that they, they understand their situation after they have everything in place. <laughs> I think that's wise advice. You know, here in the United States, your employment cannot be, genetic information cannot be used to discriminate on the basis of your employment. It also can't be used to prevent you from your ability to obtain health insurance. That same level of protection, however, doesn't exist for life insurance or disability insurance. So before you think about a genetic test that may potentially give you information that is important important to understanding your long-term health, you want to think about what would this tell me? What might this not tell me? Do I have all of my other components, as you just said? Do I have all my other uh, pieces in place before I go out and gather this information? Very helpful. And I think you and I have talked about information as power in the past when we had our previous conversation, but it can also be unsettling and different consequences. I have a friend actually that did some genetic testing or genomic testing, all of it. And happily though, she found a missing sibling and it was a a very happy event. It enriched her life, but that's not always the case, is it? You're absolutely right. Because we share genetic information with our relatives, those kinds of ancestry testing may identify relatives that we didn't even know exist. And they may uncover narratives about family members that some people may prefer not to know, or they may be caught off guard. The story that you mentioned had a happy ending, but not everybody has that same happy ending. Correct. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do ancestry testing or, or uh, you know, look for identity testing. It can be really powerful. As you said, information has power. It is power. But we also need to know what we might unexpectedly find. Uh, the same is true in a, in a health-related setting. When you go in to, uh, to have your a certain set of genetic tests, you need to recognize that if the results come back, if there's a certain result that comes back, it might tell you something about your lifelong risk of developing disease, or it might tell you that you have a disease for which there right now is no treatment for. And you need to decide if you want that information before you go into the test. Now, again, not every test is gonna give you all of that kind of information. Some tests are very, very targeted for one specific disorder or for one thing. But this concept of informed consent becomes so critical for people to understand what might this test tell me and what will it not tell me and how am I prepared uh, for that information? And how is genetic data protected? Uh, Genetic 
information because it can be used to identify us, goes through a, a, a multiple levels of, of protection, especially in a health setting. It, it, it falls under the protected types of data under the, the under HIPAA regulations. So it's subjected to an extra set of who has access to it, how, who, how is it stored, how is it kept away from other individuals. Many people that do ancestry testing, that ancestry, you want to look at the company and see what are their data protection plans? What are, what's their data storage? If you decide that you no longer want that information stored, can they purge that data? There are also, especially with ancestry, open access websites where people can post their genetic information outside of a third party uh, group that you might pay to do your testing, but you could- I'm gonna add a whoops there, a whoops, cause now it's no longer protected. Isn't that true? That's right, it's no longer okay. protected <laughs> and it's available for anybody to look at. And sure. so how do we think about may, not just buy information, but if my relatives have done this and are posting this, could this somehow, could this be used to potentially link back to me. Now, again, Ancestry is not giving you health data, but it is giving you data that could identify you. And a lot of forensics cases are now using uh, these open access databases to try to trace families when they've got DNA samples from crime scenes where they don't yet have a suspect. Oh my gosh. Well, let's do a sharp turn here because that's uncomfortable, but now I think we've notified our listeners to be aware before posting and to read all those disclaimers ahead of time. Let's talk about how genetic testing can guide medical treatment or prevention strategies. This is where I get incredibly excited about the power of our genetic information. Again, coming back to the recipe. Um, if I see a recipe where I know that instead of a teaspoon of salt, it's a tablespoon of salt, I may be able to do something that reduces the impact of that extra salt. Maybe before the recipe is even turned into a protein, maybe once the recipe's already been created, there might be some ways I can modify that. The same is true with our genetic information. If I know that an individual can has a genetic change that increases their risk of disease. We can begin to think about preventive strategies that reduce the likelihood of being in an environment that further increases that disease risk. I also, this is especially true in cancer, if I know that an individual has cancer and those cancer cells have a specific set of mutations that are driving that cancer, more and more, we're able now to use what are called targeted therapies. And these are therapies that were developed specifically to shut down the impact of that genetic mutation. And this has changed the face of cancer therapy. So it is now much more precise. In fact, it's called precision oncology. These medications are only useful if you have this specific mutation, but they are rather than the sledgehammer of chemotherapy that kills every rapidly growing cell, they are targeted just to those cancer cells that contain that mutation. That's, that's extraordinary. It is, it truly is. There's a whole set of therapies now, especially in the field of gene editing. Gene editing is if, you're, if your users think about maybe they're using a word processing system and they discover that they've misspelled a word all throughout their document and they can find and replace, look for this change, look for this specific spelling and make this change. 
gene editing, especially something called CRISPR, is the molecular equivalent. So you can take a set of patient cells, look for the specific mutation and edit it. It sounds like science fiction, Barbara. It but does. We're seeing therapies, especially things like sickle cell and other blood disorders where you can take a patient who has a genetic mutation, you can take some of their bone marrow, edit out the mutations and return their bone marrow that now has the corrected spelling and they are now free of disease. So oh, gene that's so wonderful. It is. It is a game changer. And then we haven't even talked about pharmacogenetics. If you want us to jump into that, we can, we well, can do Well, let's do that because I shared with you reading about an article shared with my business partner, Omar Qureshi. He and I both have this inability in our livers to process certain statins and I mean, what a surprise. I said, gee, this is great to know because I'm talking to Dr. Neil Lamb and he'll explain it better for me. So there you go. Beautiful, beautiful. So some of our genes are responsible for how our body processes medication. In fact, the way our body processes medication is primarily controlled by enzymes, which are proteins that again are created from the instructions of our DNA. And changes in those genes can make those enzymes uh, function less effectively than they should. They can make them function faster than they should, or they might not function at all. So you might take a medicine that does not do anything that it's supposed to do because your body is unable to turn it into an active drug. Or it might break that active drug down so quickly that the typical dose isn't going to give you the impact that it needs or on the flip side, it breaks that drug down very slowly and taking the typical dose would actually lead to an overdose because you have too much active drug. So the field of pharmacogenomics is reading those genes and knowing what specific medications a person will respond well to, what medications they won't respond at all to, and what medications could actually be harmful. I think pharmacogenomics is where most of us will uh, we'll first interact with our own genetic information. Well, that's so valuable. I mean, doctors prescribe certain medications to individuals and having that additional data, they can be more targeted as well about the correct medication. So hearing that, should everyone have a full genome sequencing done? Mm. <laughs> so a full why? why not? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, a full genome sequencing is similar to the reading of the entire recipe book. And there are certainly people that believe everyone should have their genome sequenced now or even at birth so that you have access to that information. And I think as science continues to expand and as we understand more of what the recipes mean and how changes in the recipes impact health and disease, having a genome sequence will ultimately make a whole lot of sense. Right now, I'm not so sure we've reached that tipping point. I think that more targeted set of genetic information, maybe around pharmacogenomics or understanding our predisposition to developing certain types of cancer, or certainly if we have a family history of disease or we ourselves or a loved one have developed symptoms, then that more targeted genetic testing might make sense. There's a lot of information in our genome that we don't know how to interpret. And, 
I think we are not quite yet at the place where I would wholeheartedly say everyone should have their genome. Do I think we're going to get there? Yes, most definitely. Yeah, there are things I probably don't want to know right now, especially when you can't do anything about it, right? So that's part of the issue. So let's talk about the impact of testing for one's cultural or racial identity. Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to Hightower's Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast, but if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. These are uh, your ancestry tests that, that, that may tell you that you're 43% this particular, uh, you know, your ancestors have come from this particular region of the globe and 25% from this region of the globe. And uh, and some people want that information because maybe they are adopted or they don't know anything about their family history and they want to better understand the ancestors that, that they've come from. Some people want that because they're looking to confirm uh, a narrative about themselves or about their, their family. Or I have my father-in-law when he was still alive, spent a lot of times looking at gravestones or going to churches to get the ancestry. And had he had, I guess, the access to more of what we have today, it might've made some of this a little easier for him in building that family tree. And part of ancestry testing actually helps you identify close relatives from parents and siblings and and children and grandchildren to, you know, third, fourth, fifth cousins. So it does help you make some of those connections if you're trying to build your family tree, you know, three, four or five generations back. Other thing ancestry testing can do can go way back, hundreds and hundreds of years into your ancestry and tell you something about where you're very, very distant ancestors lived or where they originated from. And I think that's, that is useful information if if that sort of thing is, is of interest or important to you. But I would also say that our own identity as part of a cultural or a racial group goes deeper than just our genetics that we shared with those ancestors. There's a lot of the way we perceive ourselves based on our shared experience and, and the groups that we identify with. And sometimes the genetic testing doesn't always bear out those specific identities. And I want to be careful that that doesn't just automatically negate it for people. You know, for example, I told you there are 20,000-ish genes in our genome, right. and about a dozen of them actually provide instructions that determine how much pigment is in our skin and our eyes and our hair. So wait, 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 stop, stop there. So only a dozen out of 20,000 individual genes will determine the color of our skin. And we're not talking about if, if you're white and you get a tan or not, we're talking about just that small number. So Again, I don't understand why it's such a big deal, right? When it's only a dozen genes out of 20,000. We are so much more common than we are. And and it's such a small number of genes that we often use to categorize people. So my point is that our identities, the groups that we 
link and connect with go beyond just how much DNA we share with those groups. And I think people just need to recognize that. Again, I feel like I'm a little bit of a broken record saying you need to recognize what genetic information can and can't tell you and be aware of that as you before you do the testing or as you get the results back. Well, that's fascinating. So have you ever done any of this type of testing personally? I have. I have done the genetic tests that tell me about my ancestry and relatives. I've done some of the genetic tests that give me hints into my risks of developing certain diseases and, and tell me really, you know, interesting traits about myself. I, I haven't had my genome sequence. That's on my list of, of things to do. My, obviously, when I was born, I had a heel stick. So I had, you know, the early genetic test, although at that point in time, back in the 1970s, it was all looking at proteins, not looking at any DNA. Um, but I, so, so yes, I have had some of those genetic tests. Well, is this type of testing, is it different than, let's say someone has a blood draw for the newer test for 50 different types of cancer, I think it's called Grail test. Unpack that for me. What's the difference there? There are some similarities. Those tests are generally looking at what are called biomarkers. And a biomarker is some something that can be found in blood or in urine or other bodily fluid. Um, oftentimes they are proteins. Sometimes they're little pieces of DNA. Sometimes they're small, tiny bits of proteins or tiny biochemical molecules. And the key to these biomarkers is each one has been correlated with there's a specific range that indicates general health and outside of that range indicates that there's some possible dysfunction. Now, some of those biomarkers are really closely correlated with health and disease. For example, your blood sugar level, that's a biomarker that tells you something about your uh, how responsive your body is to insulin and if, you are, uh, if you're in diabetes or prediabetes. These biomarkers for cancer are specifically looking for these tiny proteins or, or molecules that are often found in the presence of cancer X or cancer Y. And that whole field of biomarkers becomes incredibly powerful as we look to the future, the ability to know more about our health rapidly from an easy to access molecule. It's pretty easy to get blood or saliva, much easier yeah. than getting tissue and being able to detect out of balance biomarkers before you even develop symptoms of disease. There's power in that, because if you can find that early, then you can think about how you redirect or how you have an intervention that moves someone back onto a healthy trajectory. Wow, so you did mention the future. So how do you think the field of genetic testing is likely to evolve in the coming years? As the science continues to improve, I think we will see more and more of that case for having your genome sequenced and, and what, we, what we do with that. As we begin to understand what does this particular change mean? What is the risk factor with that? I think our physicians will increasingly be trained in how to incorporate that into their decision-making and the way they talk to us about it. It'll become a part, a standard part of our medical health record, and it will be something that can be scannable and you can look when you develop a new set of symptoms to see if someone has a genetic predisposition. I think we will see that more and more as an integrated part of health 
and also of wellness. If you know early in life that you have certain things that you're predisposed to, you know to look out for them, you know to be tracking them specifically. That also requires us to think differently about how we view people with genetic change because we all have genetic change that makes us susceptible for certain diseases. So back to the conversation around discrimination and how we think about the way that we look at risk. We've got to have a better way to integrate that into uh, not only the way that, that we interact with each other, but the way we make health economic decisions, the way that we think about liability, all of those pieces. So our basic DNA makeup doesn't change. Is that, or, or is there something that could make a change? What's yeah. What should we be thinking about there? Because if I got tested at, let's say, let's, let's go into the future, I get tested as a child and I get a whole genome sequence. Will that look different from birth to age 70? It's a really fantastic question that requires us to do a little bit of science. So we'll, we won't dive too deep for your listener. Okay. Every time your cells divide, they have to make a full copy of that genetic information so that each of the two daughter cells has a complete set of cookbooks, for example. And your cells are really good at copying that DNA. But even with that great set of copying skills, there still are some mistakes. So typically, out of 6 billion letters of information in your genome cookbook, Every time your cells divide, there's somewhere between 15 and 30 changes. That is the smallest percentage. It's tiny. So in general, as a fully formed adult with trillions of cells, any place in my DNA is going to be pretty consistent from cell to cell. So it's fair to say, broadly speaking, my genome does not change from, you know, egg and sperm coming together to, to infant to adult. That said, those changes, those copying errors, along with periodic environmental factors that can damage my DNA, like ultraviolet light can damage the DNA in my skin cells, mean that as I get older, some of my cells are going to contain genetic changes. And the older I am, the more genetic changes are gonna be in those cells. And some of those changes are gonna be in genes, in recipes that tell my cells how rapidly to divide and when to stop dividing and how to fix errors. And if those kinds of errors, those kinds of mutations accumulate in our cells, those cells can become cancerous. So cancer is a genetic disease. There are a small percentage of cases where we inherit risk factors from our parents, but most cancer are mutations that we've acquired over time as our cells have not quite gotten the copying right. So those cancer cells are slightly different. On the whole, they're still very, very similar to any other cell, but they've contained a set of mutations that are in, I was gonna say the right genes, but really in the wrong genes that lead those cells to behave like a runaway freight car and to grow out of control. Oh gosh. This has been really helpful, especially I want to talk a little bit about public awareness because I'm fascinated by some of the science snapshots that I found on the Hudson Alpha guidebook from antibiotic resistant genes in the gut microbiome that can just be improved possibly with diet. 
to research on proteins in house cat allergens that affect 15% of the population. So I will make those links to the guidebook because I found it fascinating, available. But how else can we get the word out to the rest of the, the, the world to say, don't be afraid of this, embrace the learning and begin understanding? Thank you for mentioning the guidebook. The education team at Hudson Alpha always is focused on how we help everyone from students to teachers to physicians to the public understand the power of genetics. And every year we put an annual guidebook together. And I think you've just said that you'll put a link in, in the show notes that covers new findings in the field. Some of those developed at Hudson Alpha, many of those developed around the world. I think people are naturally inquisitive about what makes them themselves or what makes the world around them go. And the guidebook's a great way to look at, at that information. Another, two other really great resources that I would suggest to you. One is the NHGRI, that's the National Human Genome Research Institute. It's part of the National Institutes of Health. And NHGRI provides a lot of fantastic background for the public about genetics and about genetics and your health and understanding genetic variation. And another place that I would point your listeners to is a great group called the Personal Genetics Education Project, PGED. And PGED, their mission is helping people understand stories around genetics and genomics and how to think about those without saying, this is the best thing ever, and without saying, this is the most horrible thing ever. But how so it's think nice and balanced. Balanced. And it's balanced. It, it, it gives people some of the nuance that they need. To, to think through that. And if those, you, if you send me that, I'll make sure I add those to the podcast notes as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Neil, I have appreciated you sharing information on all this testing and the genetics versus genomics. And a few notes I have, um, I am thinking about all my different cookbooks and all the recipes in there right now, even as I say this, but Determining your ant ancestry is a genetics test. Determining your ancestry is actually looking at little bits of information across your entire genome. So you could argue that it's a genomics test. Okay, thank you. And then valuable information for identifying and specifically treating disease can be enhanced by testing, as well as let's make sure we have our legal documents and insurance in place prior to testing about our health and potential disease risk. Is that fair? It's fair. Thank you. Well, I have one last question for you, Neil. How do you keep your well in wealthy? It's a beautiful question, Barbara. I am working right now on practicing mindfulness and not letting the everyday noise get to me and being able to stop and identify the beauty of a sunset or a flower or a phenomenally baked loaf of bread. And that, that practice of mindfulness together with yoga and exercise really, really helps me find a balance and a better path to my own wellness. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Well, Neil, I really appreciate you joining us. And I've added some of those helpful show notes. I'm going to get more from you before we get this put out. And to connect our listeners to the Hudson Alpha, the Tiny Expeditions podcast, as well as the guidebook I mentioned and the blog, I found it all fascinating. So you can contact Dr. Neil Lamb at website.
website, hudsonalpha.org and hit contact us and you can reach out to him or go to any of the links that we will be providing. So again, thank you, Neil. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with me as your host, Barbara Archer. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when I come out with a new podcast, it will show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. From everyone at Hightower Advisors, this is Barbara Archer, reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.